God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I was fortunate enough to meet him over the telephone about a month ago um, when I was uh, graced with the honor of being his host for this conference. And when we picked him and his wife up... Hey, everybody, I'm Cliff Good Grateful Alcoholic. I'm sober since August 15th, 2001, and for that short amount of time, I'm as grateful as I know how to be. And i got to be honest with you, this is one of the best-looking bunch of sick people I've seen in a while. So <laughs> it's good to be here, man. I want to thank, uh, thank Mike for uh, calling and inviting Lori and I to be here this weekend. It's uh, just been a great weekend. It's really been good. This, you know, uh, our friend from Nashville who talked last night, uh, and Lori this morning gets up and calls him Buckley. And, and I thought, well, she's just following that other guy that made fun. Then she calls him Buckley again. And so, Brantley, I'm sorry that they did that. And uh, <laughs> we'll try to do better. That's all I can tell you. So it's been, it's been, a, it's been a great bunch of speakers. And, uh, and uh, uh, Barclay got us kicked off and did such a great job last night. And uh, how many people heard my sweet wife, Lori, today? Anybody hear her? Yeah? Yeah, it's been all downhill from there. That's all I can tell you. But uh, John and I were together. John and I were Lori were together a few years ago down in Florida at Tampa. And uh, so it's always good to be with him. And we saw him again. We were in Florida for the state, uh, Florida State uh, Convention in August and got to see John again. And of course, Cindy is dear, dear friend of ours and has been a friend of ours for a number of years. And don't say yourself short. Don't be one of those people that come just for tonight. And thank you, oh, it's too early to get up on Sunday. You're going to cheat yourself if you don't come Sunday and hear Cindy talk. Uh, it'll be a great talk. So please don't cheat yourself. Please show up in the morning and, and hear a great talk to send us all home. Uh, I know this about uh, conferences like this. I will say this because Butch was supposed to be here tonight, and Butch usually always says this. And so what he says is he, he when he comes to a conference like this, he's a selfish alcoholic. And when he gets here, he expects everything to run timely. <laughs> you know, he, when he gets here, he wants the registration desk to be where it's supposed to be, the hospitality room, and everything to run orderly. He wants, you know, the ribbons to be out, the, the, the badges to be out, everything to run smoothly. Because he's selfish alcoholic, he wants to show up and take advantage of all that. And we all do. And here's what I can tell you about that. For the last year, people have been getting together. And they've been getting together because they're throwing a party for us. And they've been working behind the scenes. They've been doing that all year, and they've been doing it all weekend. So when we show up here, it looks effortless. Hospitality rooms open. Badges are out. People selling raffle tickets. It all runs so smoothly. And they do that uh, out of service for us. So when we get here, we get to take advantage of all that. And we get to enjoy all their hard work this whole year. So my hats are off to this committee for the unbelievable work that you've done to put this together. It's just great. Because what I know all about that is 30 years ago, because this is the 29th, 30 years ago, some people had a dream. They had an idea. And uh, this is the culmination uh, here these 30 years later for the 29th. I mean, they just didn't have an idea and have a conference the next day. You know, they started 30 years ago planning the very first one. And so here we are this 30 years later. 
the fruits of all that hard work from all these alcoholics in service these last years. So thank you very much for the sustainability of this conference uh, and for us participating. I want to thank Chris and Becky for coming and fetching us. Uh, it was kind of a little bit of excitement because Becky was a navigator and she just put the phone in her lap and so off we went. And uh, But we ended up here and we got here in a timely fashion, unharmed and unscathed. So that was good. I... Uh, my story really comes in two parts. The first part's sad, and the second part's pitiful. So I'm just going to... Uh, I remember the first time I got invited out of town to talk somewhere. It's probably out of town, probably 30 miles away. And uh, I was so excited to go talk, and I went and talked. And uh, the next day I was telling my sponsor, you know, he said, well, how did it go? And I said, well... I guess it was great. They all stood up and applauded when I was done. He said, maybe they were just glad you were done. So so I'll let y'all be the judge of that tonight, (laughs) which side it falls down on tonight. So anyway, um, you know, I'm a guy that uh, from the very beginning had what every speaker has described here this weekend, that that, uh, restless, irritable discontentedness, that spiritual malady that our book talks about. Uh, that idea that I'm, if I'm with this group, uh, at some point in time, it sounds better to be with these folks over here. You know, I'm a kid that's just, you know, I'm unhappy, I'm unsatisfied, I'm dissatisfied, particularly with my current circumstances. I'm just, I'm just not good where I am. And, uh, it's like having a hundred piece puzzle set and having a piece missing. It's like, uh, walking somewhere, going somewhere and being early, but feeling 15 minutes late. It's like this idea that I walk into a crowd and I feel all alone. All that stuff that we talk about in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, this separateness, this idea that I'm different from, I suffer from all that. And uh, when I was 11 years old, my brother down in southeast Oklahoma under a big old weeping willow tree on a hot summer day, he broke off this uh, tall boy can of country club malt liquor. Anybody in here ever drink country club malt liquor? Well, for the, I know Paul did. For the rest of you people, that's God working in your life. I just need to say that right now. He broke out this tall boy can of country club malt liquor, and he took a big drink, and he handed it to me. And I took a big drink. And I don't know how long it took us to finish up that can under that uh, big weeping willow tree. But what I can tell you is this. At the end of that period of time, something happened to me. The book describes it uh, as this effect that's produced by alcohol. It really can be like the magic that alcohol produces in an alcoholic like me. The book talks about the illusion created by the drink, by the alcoholic, in the, in the real alcoholic. And that illusion, you know, it talks about there'll come a time when the real alcoholic will be willing to chase that into the gates of insanity or death. Not up to, but into the gates of insanity and death. And I'm going to tell you, every time I drank, I'm willing to pay that price tomorrow to eliminate the way I feel in the right here, right now. Because in the right here, right now, in the moment, I never fit in. I'm different from. I'm separate from. And uh, I, my experience with alcohol is not that I, I drank, puked, and it was into my social drinking. That's not my experience. Uh, by the time I get to high school, however, I'm a daily drinker. And uh, I'm uh, I, it's a curse or a blessing. I don't know what you how you want to look at it, but I have a photographic memory. Now, I can tell you the toner cartridge is a little low these days, but I have a photographic memory. So when I could, I would read something, I could retain it. So I'm a good student because I have a photographic memory. I can come in and read materials and go to school and just regurgitate it back on the test. So I'm a good student. 
But that allowed me to, I just have to read the material, go drinking and come, just got to show up for the test and I do good. And so uh, by the time I'm a senior in high school, I'm a daily drinker. Now the legal drinking age in Oklahoma when I was a kid was uh, 21 for guys and 18 for gals. So if you're a 17 year old kid in high school, it's always important to have an older woman around. And so, but there was this little bitty zippy mart in a little town I grew up in. And the legal drinking age there at 6 in the morning was old enough to get your money on the counter. So a buddy of mine, we would scrape our money together every day, and we would show up down there about 6, 6.15, and we would buy an eight-pack of Pony Millers, the champagne bottle beer. And uh, we'd buy an eight-pack, and we would split them right down the middle. I'd have six, and he'd have two. And I would get this cool buzz on, and I'd be able to go to school and maneuver around those kids seemingly undetected. And uh, I became a blackout drinker when I got to college. I went to law school at the University of Oklahoma. I graduated down there, photographic memory, so I'm going to do well in school. And uh, I remember going to my first day at work when I got out. And I don't know if you're like me, but when I got out of law school and I got my very first job and I went there, it's like I had this impending doom. It's like they're suddenly that they're going to find out who I am. They're going to discover who I really am and tell me it's all been a big mistake, you know. And I remember I went there, it was about day three, and a, and a guy came up to me, one of the partners, said, hey, listen, we're going to go have a cocktail after work tonight. Would you like to go? Now, I'm a country kid. I mean, I grew up in the country. I'm from a little bitty town of 5,000 people. Cocktails, that's something they did in Dallas. I mean, that's a big deal, right? Cocktails, that just sounds sophisticated, doesn't it? We're going to go have cocktails. Well, of course, you know, I, and I don't know about you, but when somebody asked me to go drinking, I've got questions. I've got some pertinent questions, and the questions some something like this. Where are we going? What time are we going? Who's going? And I think on that particular day, he said something like, well, we're going to go at 530. It's going to be me and you and two other people, and we're going to go to Pinstripes, which is a bar at the Skirvin Hotel in downtown Oklahoma City. And when he said that, I just looked at him and said, I'll get the table. Because I don't know how you were in your drinking careers, but I'll tell you how it was in my drinking careers. If... Uh, if my friend Paul called me on a Friday and said, hey, we're going to go out tonight. We're going to go drink at 9 o'clock. You want to go? I mean, you bet. I'm in. But I don't know how your drinking was, but I'll tell you how mine was. If I'm going drinking at 9, I don't wait to 9 to go drinking. i got to start drinking to get ready to go drinking, right? And so I'm going to get the table. So at 4.30, I go to the Skirvin to get the table. And so, and I need you to know this, that I'm, I'm not a sipper. I mean, I've never been a sipper. So if I get a vodka rocks, I take it, I drink it, I'm ready for another. I've been a drinker. And so I get there, and I get the table, and I start drinking. And about 5.30, they show up. And they sit down, the cocktail waitress comes around, and she takes their orders. And then she brings the drinks. And then probably 10, 15 minutes later, she comes back. And this was the conversation that took place at that table that night. She looked at the first person. Now, this guy had about a quarter of his drink left. She looked at this guy and said, would you like another? And he says this, no, my wife is cooking dinner tonight, and i got to get home. It's going to be ready in 45 minutes. With a quarter of a drink on the table, he pays his bill, gets in his car, and presumably goes home to his wife. He eats dinner with her, and he may have another drink tonight, tomorrow, next week, next month, may never drink again. He looks at the second lady. She's got about half her drink. Says, would you like another? She says, no, my daughter's in a soccer game. It starts in 30 minutes. I got to get there. With a half a drink on the table, she gets up, pays her bill. 
gets in her car, goes to her daughter's soccer game, gets there early, gives her a hug, tells her she loves her, it's going to be a great game. She goes, sits in the stand with the other parents, this is really important, does not get thrown out of the soccer game. Uh, <laughs> after the game, she goes with the other parents to have pizza and beer. She may or may not have another drink tonight, tomorrow, next week, next month. She may never drink again. And then there's this third lady at the table. Now, this lady, she has about uh, three-quarters of her drink left. I know you probably have all encountered somebody like this. Or maybe it's the worst-case scenario. The ice is melting and the booze is overflowing. Now, in this crowd, that's alcohol abuse, I know. But anyway, and the waitress looks at her and says, would you like another? And she says the strangest thing of all. She says, no, I don't care for any more. I'm beginning to feel it. Oh, (laughs) Whoa. When I get information like that, here's what I think. Okay, now we need to start ordering tequila shots. (laughs) Because if you're feeling it and you're a real alcoholic, there's a window. There's a window you got to get through. And I'm beginning, she's saying, I'm beginning to feel it. But what I can tell you today is that I know what that lady's saying is that the effect of alcohol produced in her is significantly different than the effect of alcohol produced in me. That when she says, I don't want anymore, I'm beginning to feel it. She's saying, I'm beginning to feel impaired, and I don't want anymore. She doesn't like the way that makes her feel. And see, when I drink, that's not what happens to me. See, when I start drinking, I don't begin to feel impaired. I begin to feel empowered. And I'm getting ready to get up and do some Jekyll and Hyde kind of stuff here pretty quick, you know. I'm about to go on a personal adventure. That's what I'm going to do, maybe. Maybe an expedition. We're not sure yet, but we're going to do something. And then what I can tell you about my drinking that I know today that I really didn't know then, but there was only three conditions of when I would stop once I start. Pass out, run out, blackout. Other than that, when I start, I'm drinking, and I'm going till it's done, till the job's done. You ever had anybody invite you over to their house? They call you up and say, hey, come over, let's have a couple of beers. And you go to their house, and you open the fridge, and that's what they meant, two beers. <laughs> and you just get mad. You don't know why you get mad. You look in the fridge, two beers, I'm mad, I'm leaving, I'm not staying, because I know that's not going to get the job done. I don't know why I know that. I just get mad and leave, because some things I don't know about me, I don't know that when I drink beverage alcohol, something happens internally inside of here different than 90% of the population. See, I don't know when beverage alcohol comes into this system, it sets off this allergic reaction. I don't know anything about that. I don't know that when I start drinking, it's on. I don't know when I start drinking, I get thirsty. I don't know that. I just think I like to party. I think when I start drinking, I just like to have a good time. You know, and I know people who have other kind of allergies. I mean, I know people who are like allergic to bee stings. I know people who are allergic to like um, milk. I know people who are allergic to nuts. I mean, my God, the peanut people. You could, I could talk about them for a day. You know what I mean? Well, you brought it up. Let's talk about them. So the peanut people. I mean, these people, they make one emergency room visit. They quit forever. I mean, they eat a peanut, have to go to the emergency room. They quit forever. I mean, they don't have to go to Peanut Anonymous. They, they don't got to get a peanut sponsor. They don't even have to read the peanut big book. They don't have to do any of that. I mean, they have one emergency room visit, and they meet it. I mean, when they go to a restaurant after that, they walk in and they ask the maitre d', has a peanut been on this city block? I mean, it's not enough has one been in this restaurant. they got to know has it been on the block. They're vigilant. 
And I'm going to tell you something. I'll give away cars, houses, wives, children, jobs, careers, respectability, dependability. Never connect the dots. It's the booze. Never connect the dots that I have this reaction that's abnormal inside of me. Never connect the dots that when I drink, something different happens to me. This three-headed monster of alcoholism, spiritual, physical, and mental, you know, and if it was just that, if it was just this physical allergy, you know, somebody like Christina come in and says, hey, stupid, you've got an allergy to booze. You just need to quit. You just need to stop. And people who have drinking problems can just stop. They just stop. But I have alcoholism. I don't know I got alcoholism, but that's what I suffer from. And so it's the third piece of the puzzle. It's the other piece of alcoholism, this mental obsession that makes people like my sweet wife who gave an unbelievably great talk today. It's people like her who's never had a drop of booze in their life that my behavior as it relates to beverage alcohol, it drives them absolutely insane. At any given moment, if you'd have ripped the roof off our house and looked in, you would have said, she's the crazy one. She's the one that's, she's the, one that's the problem. It makes people who's – the mental piece of alcoholism makes people who've never taken a drink die early, develop heart conditions, develop anxiety, and they never take a drink. And that mental piece, that mental portion of alcoholism looks something like this. I'll come home. It's on a Thursday. Lori's cooking dinner. I walk in. She looks at me and she says, we're having dinner in an hour, and we're out of bread, and I need you to get a loaf of bread. Yes, ma'am, I'm on it. And I get in my car. I'll go down to Homeland. I walk in the door. I go to the bread aisle. I get the bread. I check out. I'm out the door. I look at my watch. I got 50 minutes on the clock. I'm sailing. I'm doing good, man. I walk out the door. I run into Andre. Andre looks at me and says, hey, man, what are you doing? And I said, well, Lori's home cooking dinner. She sent me for bread. I got it. 50 minutes is going to be ready. I'm going to take this home. And Andre looks at me, and he says something like this. 50 minutes. 50 minutes. Well, hey, man, we could go to the, to the log in, have a couple of beers. You'll be home in 50 minutes. Now, when I get information like that, <laughs> I filter that through the keen alcoholic mind. <laughs> and I know everybody in here that's alcohol identifies as an alcoholic gets the idea of the keen alcoholic mind because, my God, AA is the only place we talk about the keen alcoholic mind, man. I'll promise you this. In the al meetings, they're never talking about the keen alcoholic mind over there, <laughs> ever. So Andre and I, on a Thursday night, I got 50 minutes left on the clock. We go to the log in to have a couple of beers. Now, Sunday when I get home, everybody's mad at me. She's mad. The kids are mad. The dog mad. The cat mad. I don't know why. I got the bread. Right? I got the bread. And I don't know how it is if you've ever found yourself in a jackpot like that. But when I find myself in a jackpot like that, I like to get everybody together because I got to tell the story, right? And alcoholics are all about stories. I mean, my God. Somebody tonight will go to the bathroom and come back and say, y'all not going to believe this, and just tell them the story, right? <laughs> tell the story about the adventures in the bathroom tonight. That's it. <laughs> so I start telling them the story. And I toss, tell the story. I'll go to the store, go in, get the bread, come out. 50 minutes on the clock, Andre. And when I get to that part of the story, and I say the word Andre, something in my head flips. 
And it says, my God, there's the problem. Andre's the problem. <laughs> and I begin to tell the story with a whole different perspective about it. I tell the story from the perspective that Andre is the problem. And the crazy part about that is as I'm telling the story, I'm buying it more than she is. I mean, I'm believing Andre is the damn problem. Well, we all know he is. But anyway, and when I get done with the story, and generally when I'm in a jackpot like that and the people I'm talking to are generally the people I say I love the most. I'm looking into the eyes of the people who certainly love me the most. I'm looking in the eyes of the people that on any given day, if anybody on earth would treat them the way that I treat them, I'd take them out my front yard and I'd beat them to death. Beat them to death. But I look into their eyes, my mom, my dad, any one of the three ex-wives, Lori, my brother, friends, employers, employees, and I look them in the eye, and I say, but I can guarantee you one thing. I'll promise you one thing. I swear one thing. This will never happen again. Never happen again. And the crazy part about that is put a lie detector on me, I'll pass it. In that moment, when I'm looking at all the, the people's eyes and seeing one more time the disappointment and feeling the regret, the shame, the remorse that I don't have an answer for. I don't really have a credible answer for other than what the book tells me when I say, I don't know why I did that. And one more time, I believe it, and I honestly believe I'll never do it again. So I go to bed that night. Next morning, I get up, still pretty chilly at my house. I get in my car. I go to work. I go through traffic to get to work. On my way to work, I start thinking about how they don't appreciate me down there. I mean, I'm down there busting my ass two, three hours a day. I mean, I'm killing it at work, man. I mean, <laughs> blowing it up down there. And I get down there. I mean, I'm at work about 1 o'clock. I'm pretty much done, you know. I get back in my car, start driving home. And on my way home, this thought occurs to me. I don't know why they're mad at me. I apologized yesterday. And when I get to a thought like that, I've got two or three maybe on a really good stretch, maybe 12, 24 hours. And what happens for an alcoholic of my type is that I'm going to find myself at a bar, I'm going to be at somebody's house, or I'm going to be two or three drinks in saying, how did this happen again? How did I even get started? This peculiar mental blank spot. The book talks about the peculiar mental twist of alcoholism. That piece right there, that piece. The portion between the time I say I'm never doing it again and I find myself drinking again, what happens in there? What lies between I'll never do it again and meaning it and finding myself drinking again? And in that gap, in that space, lies the illness of alcoholism, the peculiar mental twist, the piece where I look at the people I love the most and say I'll never do it again, yet I do it again. And that's my story. And that's what makes me alcoholic. It doesn't matter where I grew up because I grew up with some really good people. I grew up with good people. My, bro my mama had uh, eight brothers. Seven of them died of alcoholism. My mom was not a drinker. I said, you're just a carrier. That's what you are. And uh, <laughs> my dad had uh, six brothers and sisters. Four of them died of alcoholism. 
My dad and mom, they never, they never drank. I mean, if I saw, I say that, if I saw them drink five beverages my whole life, it might be an exaggeration. Maybe. I can tell you this, when my mom passed away a few years ago, we went down to clean her house. She had a pint of apricot brandy because she used to get a hot toddy when she was sick. And that brandy, it had like mold on it. I mean, that's how you know you're not living with alcoholics, right? I mean, it's got mold on it. It's floating in there. I mean, it's just, just not alcoholic, man. Good people who taught me right from wrong, that gave me a moral code, that instilled in me the goodness of life. Never had any doubt that I was loved. Never a doubt about that. Gave me everything that I ever wanted. My idea, however, is that I have this this delusional thinking. You know, all my life I've seen myself as kind of this rebel, this kind of... uh, you know, uh, live on the edge, uh, Jim Morrison kind of lizard king kind of deal, you know, see myself this, and I'm really kind of Eddie Munster, but I see myself as this different, I mean, I just, my perspective is just off, you know, it's just off. And, um, uh, I'm a real alcoholic. I drink every time I want to. And by the time I'm, uh, by the time I'm 28, I'm a first name partner. I have a law firm. I have 30 people that report directly to me. I'm successful. I'm very successful. And I'm going to tell you something. From as long back as I can remember being in that little kid, that idea that if I'm here, I need to be somewhere else. I've been running from something my whole life. I don't know what I'm running from. I'm trying to run something. You know, if I could get here, it'll be all right. If I ever do this, it'll be okay. If I graduate from college, I'll be okay. Once I get out of this town, I'll be all right. Once I get my law degree, I'll be fine. Once I get a job, once I become a lawyer and I get to those benchmarks and I look around, it's never enough. It's one of those deals like, what's next? What's next? Because I suffer from the spiritual malady, restless, irritable, discontented. And what I know, it's never enough. As long as I'm chasing the material things in life, it's never enough. If I had 10 million bucks in the bank, I'd want 20. It's never enough. You know, John. It's never. By the way, thanks for the rag. You left it up here. Thanks. It's never enough. It's just never enough. And... uh what happened? I had this, I had this big law firm in downtown Oklahoma City. I just, uh, I had just lost hostage number three. She and I had produced a hostage yet. And, uh, they had left because I, I don't know about some of you people. When I start drinking, I, lots of bad things happen to me. One of the bad things sometimes happens to me when I start drinking is I suffer from matrimonial amnesia. I don't know if any of you suffer from that. <laughs> I forget, you know, I just forget. And, uh, and I have bad things happen to me when I start drinking. I mean, I, I have some things that I say I'm never going to do. I just have things I'm never going to do. I was in a bar in Norman. Uh, I don't know. It's, I was about 26, maybe. I was in a bar in Norman, and I was drinking. I'd been drinking all day. It was Sunday. Been drinking all day. I had live bands all day. I'm drinking all day. And uh, I don't know. It's about 10 o'clock at night. I get up and go to the bathroom. I always feel like when I'm in a room with this many ladies, I need to explain this a little bit because... I know none of you have ever been to a men's restroom before. So, anyway, <laughs> except for you, ma'am. So, anyway, uh, there's, ladies, there's all kind of different men's restrooms. There's some here. they got these dividers. You get this sense of privacy by the urinals. And then sometimes it's just these big old long hog troughs we just all belly up to, you know. <laughs> this is a hog trough night, just so you know. So. And I'm down there just minding my own business. It's 10 o'clock at night. I've been drinking all day, and this guy comes in. And uh, he's busy over here. He's got some act 
activity going on over here. And he pulls out what appears to be the world's smallest baby spoon. And he's got this little brown vial, and he begins just to put things up his nose. Now, I don't know about how you were when you're drinking yours, but I have rules about drinking. I got rules. Fundamental rule, we don't do drugs. We don't do drugs. We don't do drugs. I mean, I'll smoke a reefer with you, but drugs is what I'm talking about, you know. We don't do drugs. And ladies, what you need to know, if you're in a men's bathroom, and all the guys will back me up on this, if you're in a men's restroom, the last thing you want to have happen is get caught looking at the guy next to you. <laughs> well, he caught me. <laughs> you know. And he looked at me, and, and he just he caught me. And what he did was he took that baby spoon, that little bitty vial, and he just did this. Now, here's some things I need to tell you about. I'm run, I'm run by a hundred forms of fear. I have no idea how that that's the truth. I have no idea that what is the most important to me is that you like me. See, that's what I, re- I need you to like me. I'll be whoever you need me to be if you like me. And I've got this rules. I don't do these things. And I remember on that night, that guy looked at me and he did what he did and brought it to me. And the first thought in my head was this. What will he think of me if I don't do this? Total stranger. What will he think of me if I don't do this? So I just did what he did, went back to my seat. Now, what you all need to know about that night is every time that guy went to the bathroom, I followed him in there. (laughs) (laughs) Buddy of mine says cocaine is just Gatorade for the drinking man. That's all that is, right? (laughs) But I did find a cure for the blackouts, I'll tell you that. And I realize this is Alcoholics Anonymous, and, I, and you're going to say, well, that's a drug story. I don't know if it is or not. What I can tell you is this, uh, if you're here tonight and you've made rules and commitments to yourself that I'll never do this, and when you start drinking, you do those things, maybe you're just like me. I also believe this, that there's people in this room that are not really sure when they get here. My old friend Tom I used to say that when people come to Alcoholics Anonymous, they don't know if they're an alcoholic, a drug addict, or a goat. And it's our responsibility to help them figure out what they are. And if they're not an alcoholic, it's our our responsibility to help them get where they need to go. And so there are people who come to Alcoholics Anonymous and they say things like something different to how we identify with. And if you come to my home group, which is the Altered Boys, it's a men's stag group. We meet on Wednesday nights in the basement of a church. And if you come to my home group and you identify as anything other than alcoholic, we'll ask you if you have a desire to stop drinking. Not to not drink, because that's not our tradition. Do you have a desire to stop drinking? And if your answer is anything other than an unqualified yes, we will politely invite you out of the room to an ante room, and we'll set you down, and we'll talk to you about what alcoholism is and what it isn't. We'll talk to you about what AA is and what it isn't, and we'll try to figure out if you qualify to be in our meeting. If we didn't catch you before to help you figure it out and you're in our meeting, because... I don't need to disqualify people. I need to figure out how to qualify people to come into AA. And if you drink like I drink, which I've discovered a lot of people come to Alcoholics Anonymous, after they've been to a treatment center, they tell them the last thing they did. But if you set them down and say, forget about all that, talk to me just about your drinking, what I've discovered is there's a whole bunch of alcoholic addicts that are really just garden variety alcoholics disguised as something else. And what I found is that it's my job to help them find a place here. 
My sponsor told me when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous because I used to I wanted to identify as an ANDA because I thought it sounded good because I want to be different. And the reason I want to do that is because if this don't work, I got a I got a a reason to leave in my back pocket. And he told me this at about day two. Why don't you just come here and try to be an alcoholic? Let's see what happens. And oddly enough, since August the 15th of 2001, when I came to A and just tried to be an alcoholic and treated my alcoholism, I haven't been, had to be the night watchman in my neighborhood for a number of years now, you know. <laughs> Which, by the way, was an uncompensated position anyway. So, you know. And so what I want to tell you is my drinking career overtook my legal career. And there came a time as successful as I believed I was, it was still never enough. And, uh, you know, my, my practice was primarily trial work and uh, federal court work, and I just quit showing up. And people, the judges would call and say, where is he, where is he? And people would cover for me, and they would throw pillows under me, and, you know, they wouldn't let me have consequences. And what happened for me is I just, I just quit coming to work. That's probably makes some people who might have had a parking ticket and needed a lawyer a little nervous in here. But, you know, I just couldn't show up anymore. And uh, somewhere in there I had met Lori just before all this started really tumbling down. And, you know, it just seemed to me that the horns in my head fit the holes in her head. And we began to do the alcoholic dance. I didn't know she was untreated al you know. I didn't know she needed to take care of me like that, right? And uh, she had this really great job. And uh, she worked for a radio station right when sports radio started blowing up in the early 90s. And uh, she had this great job. And so what I like to tell people is that's when I became a functioning alcoholic. I had a wife that worked. (laughs) (laughs) I became a real go-getter. I'd take her to work and go get her. That's what I would do. (laughs) And the last three years of my drinking, I just never drew a sober breath. And I want to tell you, I had car, I had house payment, car payments, child support. I had all the accoutrements of life. She made those, not me. Last three years of my drinking, I mean, I, re, I made a couple of licks, but I didn't work many. And I had been banished. I had gotten evicted. My law firm had got evicted from that building in downtown Oklahoma City. And I'm one of those drunks that would tell you, hey, look, my drinking never hurt anybody, never really hurt anybody. But I'm going to tell you, on that day when that law firm got evicted, 30 families lost an income just like that. I'd look you right in the eye and say, never hurt anybody. And um, so I'm, I'm living the good life at home, drinking myself to death. In the summer of 2001, uh, I was supposed to take my daughter to camp. Lori, had been, we'd been going to a counselor for quite a while. She'd send us to somebody else. This lady had figured me out, and uh, she gave some tranquilizers to Lori and said, when you take him home tonight, give him one at 5, and if you're still awake at 10, give him another one. Now, what I heard was this. we got to triple up on everything we're doing tonight. they got to beat this thing. <laughs> and uh, I've had plenty of blackouts, but I had a schizophrenic whiteout this particular night. That's all I'm going to tell you. And I barricaded myself in a room on the other side of the house. And the next morning, she broke in. There's an empty quart of vodka, an empty quart of wine. Uh, The blue screen was on the TV where the adult videos had run out. There was a little bitty baggie with some plastic substance in it. And I'm going to tell you, she hit me like I'd been shot out of a cannon. And she shook that bag of dope at me. She said, what the hell is this? And I looked at her, and I looked at that dope, and I looked back at her, and I said, I don't know. Uh... (laughs) 
I think those people barricaded me in here dropped it on the way out. That's what I can tell you. Yes. And that was June 30th, 2001. It's not my sobriety date, but it's a really important date because it's the date I came to you. I'd been to treatment in the 80s because hell, it was fashionable, you know. Uh, I'd been to treatment in the 80s because people thought I had a drinking problem back then. I certainly didn't think that. But they did, and I hold a professional license. And they throw, they told me, they said, if you don't go to treatment, we're going to get that license taken away. So I'm not stupid, so I went. And I don't want you good people to think that I went to treatment and didn't believe I had some kind of problem. I did believe I had a problem. It seemed to me that that summer it was a back problem. Everybody was on mine. They didn't off. So I went to treatment. And I sat out there. I didn't, I didn't listen to anything. And you may be sitting here tonight. There may be somebody here tonight in this room that can't hear anything that anybody said tonight. And I'm going to tell you this. It may not be the guy with a month. It not might be the gal with six months. It might be the person in this room tonight with 25 years. Might be the person in this room with 30 years tonight. Because here's what I can tell you about alcoholism in my experience for the very short time of 22 years I've been here. So I've watched people come to Alcoholics Anonymous and have a spiritual awakening. It's the greatest promise of our steps. 12, step 12 promises us if we do these things, we'll have an awakening. You know what the real trick in Alcoholics Anonymous is? It's not necessarily having a spiritual awakening. The book is designed, if you do these things, you'll, have a pro- you'll get that awakening. You'll get it. That's not the biggest trick in Alcoholics Anonymous. Biggest trick in Alcoholics Anonymous, staying awake. Biggest thing here is staying awake. Because everybody in this room has any time can tell a story after story after story about people who come to Alcoholics Anonymous, take the steps, have an awakening, be on fire for AA, and somewhere along the way, begin to backtrack through the steps, take their wheel back in three, go insane in two, walk right out the door and drink, and we never see them again. That happens. And so when we talk about the suffering alcoholic, that's not necessarily the person on the street because that person still has some semblance of a solution because drinking still working for them. I believe when we talk about the still suffering alcoholic, i got to remember that's somebody in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it could be the person that you hold hands with tonight when we say the prayer. When we look at people in AA and we ask them how they're doing, pay attention. Pay attention to what they say. Pay attention to what they do. Don't let people slip off on us. You know, I always think about if I leave AA, where would I go? Where would I go? I mean, we got nowhere to refer people down to here. I mean, this is it for us. I mean, where would I go? If I leave my tribe, where would I go? But in the summer of 2001, I came up with a newcomer plan, which is vitally important for everybody. And my newcomer plan was I'm going to go to AA for 30 or 60 days till she settles her ass down. I mean, you know. And when she settles down, I'm going to come back and stop going to AA and go back to living my life the way I want to live it. It's a great plan unless you're a real alcoholic, and it's not worth anything. And I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I sat there for 45 days. And every day I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm going to tell you, I was 41 when I rolled into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous in the summer of 2001. And when I rolled into AA, I had 41 years of restless, irritable, discontentedness every day. The four horsemen would wake up with me every day, and they would ride with me all day long. And I would sit in AA, and I would think, how do I drink, and how do I stay sober? How do I drink, and how do I stay sober? Because I'm suffering 
from that mental piece. I've got the obsession and it's on me and I'm just gutting it out, you know. And I'm going to tell you my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous. I had people that I drank with growing up. There were people that I went to college with. There were people that I, that I went to high school with. There were people that I got out in the workforce with and they drank a lot like I drank. I mean, we would come home for Christmas when I was in college and we would burn, we'd come for Christmas and then for a week we would just burn it to the ground, man. We would stumble back in after New Year's Day and limp back to school. I mean, and they look just like me. I mean, they're drink for drink with me. And then the strangest thing happened to those people. They met him, they met her, they got a good job and they quit. They just quit. And you know the strangest thing of all? They quit and their lives got better. They got promotions at work. They started buying houses. They started having kids. They didn't divorce their spouses. They got those things called 401ks. That kind of stuff happened for them, man. Their lives got better. In the summer of 2001, I'm sitting in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous thinking, how do I drink? How do I stay sober? An epiphany come to me. I'm not like my friends. I'm not like my friends because I stopped drinking and my life did not get better. It got appreciably worse day after day after day. And on the 45th day of just not drinking and going to meetings, I walked out of an AA meeting on a Thursday. I went right to a bar because the solution for me was I'm either going to kill myself or I'm drinking. And I went to a bar and started drinking on a Thursday afternoon. I come home on a Sunday because when I start drinking, I do what our book talks about. I go at large, <laughs> you know, I go at large. And I came home on a Sunday and nobody's happy to see me. She wants to do a drug test, right? I mean, that's a little over the top. I'm thinking, you know, that's when I found out it was still her more house than mine. So, you know, I went to a buddy of mine's house. I detoxed on his couch. And on August the 15th of 2001, I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous and I sat down. Now, I didn't know it was going to be the day I sat down at AA. And I'm willing to bet if we took a survey of all the alcoholics here tonight and looked at their sobriety date, at the end of the day, they'd say I'd have been just as well off to take a dart and thrown it out of calendar. The day I got sober, and my, my bet is the day that you got sober, you had no idea that was the day. No idea that was going to be the date. None. And I certainly didn't have the date on that. That wasn't my idea. I didn't come to AA with the intent to get sober. And people, if you're new or you're nearly new and you're here tonight, please hear this. I'm a firm believer that you don't have to want to be sober in Alcoholics Anonymous to get sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. Let me say that again. You don't have to want to be sober in Alcoholics Anonymous to get sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's my experience. Because when I came here on August the 15th, I had no desire to get sober that day. I came here with a revised newcomer plan. <laughs> My newcomer plan was 60 to 90 days because she's really pissed. I mean, I got to figure out how to get over the 45-day hump, but I can figure it out. I can figure it out. And I'm sitting in an AA meeting, and there's five minutes left on the clock, and you, all of Charlie Brown's people are there every damn day. Wonk, 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 wonk. Because I can't hear anything. Why? I'm so focused on me. I'm so focused on me. The day I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, if somebody would have rolled a sheet of paper in front of me and said, write down your top 100 problems in your life. Selfishness, self-centeredness never makes the list. <laughs> would it have made yours? Never makes the list. I can't see that because I'm a giver. You people know that. I'm a giver. 
always with a hook, man. I'm like the godfather, man. Someday I may ask you to do a favor for me, right? Or a horse head ends up in your bed. That's the kind of guy I am, man. I mean, I don't see that. I don't know I'm selfish, self-centered. I have no clue about that. And I'm sitting at an AA meeting. There's five minutes left, and the head's just going. I mean, just chattering. And it's telling me everything. Five minutes left, that head goes stone cold quiet. Any chatter heads in here? Your head just talks all the time. Yeah. Your head go quiet. That's an attention getter. Oh, I went right to the edge of my seat, popped right up. And then this thought came to me. And I'm going to tell you, this is a thought I know today that did not originate in me. Because my thoughts are, how do I drink and how do I stay sober? But this thought said this. If you don't do something different today, you're going to die. And for some reason, I held on to that thought. You good people circled up, said the Lord's Prayer, and I did on that day what I did for every day I'd ever been to Alcoholics Anonymous. I broke for the door because I'm a runner. I'm a run- I need to get away. I need to run. Now, what I didn't tell you, those 45 days I'd been going to Alcoholics Anonymous, there'd been an old man there. And every day after those AA meetings, old Don would catch me. And he would look at me and say, Bub, how are you doing? And every day I'd give him the alcoholic answer, fine, I'm fine. And he would just look at me and say, well, listen, if there's ever anything I can do for you, let me know. And I would say, I will, and I'd just scoot. And here's what I can tell you about that. For 45 days, that's what Don did for me. And so I want to share with you about that is this. On the very first time, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous in the summer of 2001. I experienced love there. I experienced love in Alcoholics Anonymous every day. Because that old man every day caught me. And every day he never once said to me, here's what you need to do. He never tried to convince me I need to come to AA. He never tried to shove the book down my throat. He offered me friendship and fellowship. And when I didn't want that, what he would do is he would step aside And he let whiskey do the job. Let whiskey do the job. I love that line in our textbook, and we agnostics, it says something like, you know, uh, we had to be beat into a state of reasonableness. The next line, probably my favorite. For some of us, this was a tedious process, you know. (laughs) A lot of ass whoopings to get here, I'm telling you, you know. But love, love. Every day he would give me love. He would just show me love. And on August 15, 2001, I break for the door and old Don caught me one more day. Let me tell you about Don. You know Don. You don't know Don, but you know Don. Don was a guy that had this fundamental belief that if you weren't at a meeting 30 minutes early, you were late, right? And I don't know how you were early on, but is it really, is there anything worse than being someplace you don't want to be than being there 30 minutes early? I mean, really, think about that. And Don would get there, and he would set the books out. He would get the table set up, make the coffee. If he wasn't doing that, he'd be out in the ante room, and he'd always have what I would have described at the time as acolytes out there with him. And all they know out there at that table is read, write, pray. That's all they know out there, read, write, pray. That's all they do out there, read, write, pray. And then maybe about five minutes before the meeting, they would float into the meeting, you know. And they would sit, and, you know, then they'd start the meeting. And I don't know how they do AA here. I'm sure it's wrong. But anyway, they're, 
in Oklahoma, you know, the chairperson at some point says, does anybody have any AA-related announcements? And my God, it seemed to me that every day Don's hand would go up, and he would go on and on and on, sometimes 45 seconds, about everything going on in AA. seemed like worldwide. And if there was a newcomer at the meeting, my God, Don, the acolytes would be like chickens on a June bug, man. They just had to go in attack mode, you know. And they'd be writing their numbers in that book. It's just busy, you know. And old Don would hang back, and after the acolytes were all done, he would say, he would certainly give a number. But Don knew something that the acolytes didn't know. That new, no new alcoholic can pick up the 10,000-pound phone. So Don would get your number, and Don would call you. My hope is that you have somebody like Don in your life. That you have somebody that cares more about your life than certainly I did when I got here. And certainly who knew more about me than I knew about myself at the time. But on August 15, 2001, Don caught me out the door and he looked at me and said, Bub, how are you doing? And on that day, after having that thought, I gave him a different answer. And I just looked at him. I said, man, Don... I'm not do, doing very good. And he said, I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and he said, well, listen, if there's ever anything I can do for you, and I'm thinking, there's nothing you can do for me, man. I'm a lost ball in tall weeds. There's nothing you can do for me. But out of my mouth came, I need a sponsor. And Don got excited. <laughs> he started kind of gyrating around Cindy. I thought he was going to pee his pants. <laughs> He said, let's sit down and talk about that. I thought that was a great idea, quite frankly. We talk around here about uh, gift of desperation. Book describes it as uh, incomprehensible demoralization. It's grace. It's just grace. Don't be confused. I'm not. I'm not confused at all about what it is. It's just grace. And I'm not an alcoholic that believes we're just the blessed That we just got in here and somehow this luck fell on us. Because I believe luck is a religion of the lazy. I believe this, that everybody, grace falls on everyone. The trouble is I'm selfish alcoholic. I come to AA and the worst thing possibly can happen to me, I start feeling better. And what happens to me at two or three days, a week maybe, 30 days, I start getting a good idea. And what happens for a guy like me is I reach up and I pull the window of grace shut. But on August 15, 2001, see, Don was a student of the book. He read that part we agnostics said, you know, rather than being this idea that the world's just flying nowhere into nothing, he read that line that says, we're God's intelligent agents, ever advancing his creation. And I love that because I could just see Don every morning get up, looking in a mirror before he shaves, saying, God, Agent Don. Showing up for duty today. I don't know what you got for me to do, but I'm going to go out and try to find it. I don't know if he did that or not, but I like the way I tell that part of the story, you know. But what Don would do is every day he'd come to those clubhouse meetings looking for guys like me. He came fishing for the desperate and the dying. And what Don did for me on that day, he said, let's sit down and talk about that. And he, he'd get down and he began to talk to me the music of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he described what he was like, what had happened, and he, what he was like today. And when he did that, he said, if you care to have that, I would be grateful to help you with that. And he said, but the, I've, he said I'm going to talk to you about something. He said, uh, for a smart college boy like you, 
because he was kind. said, for a smart college boy like you, he said, you know, you hear a lot of goofy things in AA. You hear things like just don't drink and go to meetings. You hear things like 90 meetings in 90 days. You hear this idea that the steps are just suggestions. He said, that'll kill a real alcoholic like you. He said, what you need are requirements. And he said, the first requirement is you got to call me every day. He said, you got a phone, and I pulled that flip phone out that Lori was paying for. <laughs> and I put his number in there. I called that old man every day. Called him every day till the day he died. Called him on the day he died. He said, you got to be, he said, the second requirement is you got to be in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous every day. And I was thinking, well, gee, I'm pretty busy. Now, I ain't worked in three years. I'm pretty busy. <laughs> I got some underwear drawers to straighten out. Busy, you know. And he said, you don't know where the good meetings are. He said, so I'm going to come pick you up every day, and I'm going to show you where they are. And old Don set up a milk route for me. Monday, book study. Tuesday, step study. Wednesday, traditions. And it went like that. Every meeting he took me to were literature-based meetings. I never went to any kind of open-topic discussion meetings, what I like to fondly refer to as issue-with-tissue meetings, right? I mean, I don't. We went to where the solution was, where people had the solution and they were willing to share that solution with me. And he said, here's the third requirement. This is the deal breaker. He said, whenever I ask you to do something, you don't need to come back tomorrow and tell me how you feel about that. He said, you don't need to talk to me about what you think. He says, as a matter of fact, you don't need to say anything. Whenever I ask you to do something, you're going to agree to do that. And if you can't agree to that right now, I can't help you. And he made that little faint like he was about to leave, and it terrified me. It terrified me, and I agreed to it. I made a pact with the devil right there. Eh? <laughs> but oddly enough, from that day to this, I haven't found it necessary to drink or do anything that makes me want to stay up late at night ever since that day. You know. <laughs> and what Don did was he got me in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He looked at me that day, and he said, do you hope what's working for me can work for you? And I said, yes. He said, we're going to do the third step prayer. And he got the book out, and he read the prayer with me. And then he gave me some direction about going home and starting on an inventory right then. And every, every Monday I was at Don's house, and we, he started breaking the book down for me. But he knew this about me, that my problem was I'm separated from God on self-will and that I'm powerless and that what I needed to be more than anything else was tapped to the power. And what he told me was the way to get to the power is through the steps. And a guy like you who put that off, you'll drink again. A guy like you, you'll start feeling better. And you'll think this isn't what you need. And you need connected to the power. So he started me on a journey, the steps immediately. Monday night at his house, we read the book. And when we would read the book, he would ask me questions. Bill's story. He would ask me questions like, well, I had arrived. He said, did you ever feel that way? Did you ever have moments in your life where you felt like that? Down where he says, my drinking began to bother my wife. He looked at me and said, did your drinking ever bother anybody? And I began to identify with Bill Wilson. And he would go through that book and he would ask me questions. And I got through the steps and what Don did was he, he taught me Alcoholics Anonymous, not only by spending time with me, but showing me how to do AA. He would take me to those meetings. We'd get there early. We'd start setting them up, making the coffee, greeting the newcomer. At, at about three months sober, he gave me a treatment center commitment that I still have to this very day, the same treatment center commitment that Don gave me on three years sober. Don died without my permission. 
I've had a couple of sponsors in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have one now. It's a guy named Bob B. out of St. Paul, Minnesota. He knows he's my sponsor. I talked to him this week, so he's, I'm convinced he knows that I'm his sponsor. And I know he knows because he has the phone and says, hello, Cliff. So my number's in his phone. So I know he knows, right? And what I've been willing to do is take sponsorship direction from the very beginning because I had been beaten into a state of reasonableness, and I knew what was waiting for me. Because I got to a point where I didn't want to drink anymore. And what Don did, he began to talk to me about commitments and responsibilities in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he talked to me about when, the, when a group asks you to do something, they're honoring you with a commitment. They're placing trust in you that they believe you're going to fulfill this commitment. They're giving you this opportunity to be of service to them. He said, and when we do that, we honor that commitment by living up to the responsibility that the commitment offers. He taught me the value of a home group. And he taught me the difference between a home group and a meeting. And I bet it's a lot like it is here in the greater Oklahoma City metropolitan area. There's probably 10,000 meetings a month of Alcoholics Anonymous that goes on there. And if I want to just be real anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous, I can go there and I can go to all these meetings. And I can sit in the back row. And I can leave just after the prayer. I can get there just before the prayer starts, and I can leave just after the prayer is over. And I can jump around AA, and I become real anonymous in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that'll kill a guy like me. But a home group, a home group, that's something entirely different. A home group is where they know I belong. A home group is where I go to, and if I'm not there and I don't tell them I'm not going to be there, they call me. And they need to know where I am. home group is where I have a commitment. You know, they don't really care that I'm in Kentucky, although it's from Ohio, uh, whatever. But anyway, (laughs) only in AA does that make any sense, really. They don't care that I'm here. What they care about is, hey, are you going to be at the treatment center commitment Monday night? That's what they care about. They don't care anything about this. They want to know, am I, and, and that's what a home group, and Don taught me the value of that. He taught me the value of when I told somebody I was going to be there, that I needed to be there when I said I was going to be there, preferably 30 minutes early. I'm going to tell you, those kind of things have served me well in Alcoholics Anonymous because the things I've learned in AA, I've taken those outside. I began to take those into my job. You know, that building that I got tossed from, I was about a year and a half sober, and some people thought I needed to go back to work, which I thought was a good idea. And uh, I, there was an old drunk sobered up lawyer, an old drunk bail bondsman had sobered up. And they said, you got to get back to the courthouse. And they started feeding me cases, little cases. And I started getting back to the courthouse. And uh, come to find out when I'm not drunk and I'm sober, I'm a pretty decent lawyer again. And I started getting really, really busy. And I went to Don. I said, I need to move back downtown. And he said, I got to think about that. And I thought that meant I'm never going downtown. And it's about a month went by. And he goes, hey, I've been thinking about that move downtown. I go, yes. He said, I think you can do that. He said, but if you move downtown, you have to be responsible for a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous every day in downtown Oklahoma City. And there wasn't one. And so um, I went back to the building I was evicted from. And uh, I needed to make amends to them. And I went in and made an appointment. I went down there and said, you know, I got tossed from this building. They go, oh, yeah, we know. And I said, you know, I need to clean all that up. And I don't know if you remember how much that was. And he reached in his desk and pulled out a file. And uh, he remembered exactly how much it was. Uh, and uh, he told me, and I got my checkbook out, and I wrote him a check. And uh, I said, and listen, I, I, I need to move back downtown, and, and I'd like to know if I could come back down here. He said, Cliff, we would love to have you back in our building. You're going to pay a little bigger deposit this time, but we'd love to have you back in our building. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you, for the last uh, uh, 20 years, I've practiced law. 
in the building that evicted me. And, uh, you know, from time to time early on, people would come up to me and they go, didn't you get evicted from here? <laughs> and I would say, yes. And they would say this, how are you back here? And Don told me that would come a day that would happen. And he took me to that part of the book where he said our demonstrations are to be that which we are to demonstrate God's omnipotence in our lives, to show what the power of God has done in our lives. And I would tell them the story. And uh, I got back to practicing law again, and I had to go all those federal judges that I had uh, that I had not showed up for, that people had covered for me. You know, Don said you got to go get right with all those, and so I had to make the rounds. The federal, and I'm not I'm not saying my men's are any tougher than anybody's men's in here. Each of us have our own stories, but I'm going to tell you, a federal judge in this country is next to a king here. You just don't go down to see him and say, I need to see the judge. You got to make like an appointment. <laughs> and their staff are nosy. They got questions. <laughs> Why you want to come here? And there's a U.S. Marshal that sets out in their foyer. And I'm going to tell you, I made appointments with every one of those judges in the state of Oklahoma that I had to go make amends to about 14 of them. And I would make appointments and I would sit in front of them and I would tell them the story, knowing that any moment I'm telling them how I'm in, direct contempt of their court. At any moment, they could pick up the phone and say, Marshal, you need to come in here and take Mr. Gooding over to the detention center. Knowing full well that's what could happen for me. But I'm going to tell you, to a person, man or woman, they all said the same thing, Cliff, we just want you to do better. And to a person, each one of them, before I left the office today, gave me their personal cell phones. And they would say to me, if you ever have any problems, just call this number. And I'm going to tell you, there have been some times over the last 22 years where I've had my phone to ring and I look down, it's one of those federal judges. And they would say to me, Cliff, there's somebody in my courtroom today that I believe you could help. And I've become an asset to my profession again. I've been a person who, uh, because of what you taught me in Alcoholics Anonymous to show up early, to be responsible, that what I say I'm going to do, I do that. To try not to wiggle out of my responsibilities, just own the responsibilities. If I make a mistake, say I made a mistake. And I learned how to do that here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I had to make amends with my folks, you know. It's always a tough one, I think, for us. I had daddy issues. You know, I always thought he was the bad guy. He's the guy that was really the bad guy in the deal. My mom loved me, but my dad I'm not so sure about, right? And uh, I got sober, and uh, I was afraid to go make amends to them. Because every time I would go to that little hometown where they lived, I would get drunk. And uh, I had some money that I'd put together. I had one little deal I'd kind of hung on to, and I made some money. Of course, my thinking, I'm taking Lori and the kids on a vacation. Of course, I'm going too. So, and I remember uh, I had this money, and uh, I got a call from a guy. He said, Cliff, we started this little AA group down here in a little town called Antlers, Oklahoma, that was 15 miles from my hometown. He said, we got our very first speaker meeting this coming uh, about a month from now on a Saturday night. We'd love to have you come and give the AA talk. And suddenly I knew what the money was for. And God had made a safe path for me. And uh, I went and sat with my mom and dad, and I, I told them who I was and what I was. And uh, I told them um, I'd stolen some money from them. My mom and dad had a liquor store and a beer, and a beer to go, and I used to work the beer to go. They made me, really. Uh, all my friends would be out going to football games on Friday night, dates on Saturday night. I worked. And they didn't pay me for doing that. 
I mean, they gave me a car, gas money, place to eat, clothes to buy, stuff like that. But they didn't pay me for working there. And one of my jobs was to count the beer money, so hell, I paid myself. <laughs> Ten here, five there, 20 there. So I owed them some money. And so I came in, and so I, I paid them what I thought I owed them plus interest for all those years. And uh, my dad loved Alcoholics Anonymous. And I gave him a copy of the big book, and he read it. And he loved you people. And um, I was on the back porch with my dad, and something shifted in our relationship. Something began to change. He didn't change. I began to change. We talk about an Alcoholics Anonymous that we get information, we make application, then comes this transformation. I believe there's one other step in there. We get information, we make application. We have collaboration with God and brings about this amazing transformation in us. And for that transformation, my perspective on my life began to shift. I began to really see myself as Eddie Munster for the first time, you know. And I began to see my dad in a different light. And I remember one weekend, Lori and I were there, and I was sat on the back porch with him. We would have real conversations. And I remember he looked at me and said, you know what, Daddy's never been as proud of his son as I am of you. And a couple of years later, he called me and said, I've got to go to Dallas. My heart's giving me a problem. I'm going to go down and get get lined out on my medicine and stuff. He said, would you come down? I said, sure, I'd be happy to come down. And so I left on a Friday, left early, went down to Dallas to be with him for the weekend. And uh, it was raining in Dallas that weekend in February. It's cold, rainy. And uh, got there Friday night, had a great night. Saturday, I got to tell you about my dad. My dad was a working guy. He was a Korean War veteran. He's a worker. We, I grew up on a working cattle ranch. We got up every morning. Somebody asked me how that was. I said, at 4 in the morning when, it was, when the ponds were frozen over, it was cold. That's how it was. So I had to get up and start breaking ice on the ponds for the cattle. And I always thought he was the enemy. He's making me do this. He doesn't let me do these things, right? That's how my perspective was. And as we began to sit and talk and have real conversations, my perspective began to change about him. And I got to hear about him growing up when his daddy died when he was 16 years old. And he was asking for my, my, my grandfather was asking for my dad at the hospital before he died. And nobody took him to see him. And on that Saturday, he and I sat together. It was basketball season. We watched college basketball all day long. And uh, I'm going to tell you something. If God himself would have come down and said, okay, Cliff, you tell me what the day needs to look like, you got it. You script a day with you and your dad. Just tell me what you need it to be. Draw it up. I'll give it to you. I'd have messed the whole thing up. I'd have screwed the whole thing up. And I sat there with my dad that day, and he and I talked about real stuff. We watched basketball together. It was a beautiful day. He was tired. I said, listen, I'm going to go to my room. And I went. It was raining still in Dallas, and there was a little. I was hungry. There was a little taco something across the street. I pulled in, and I went to the Ordered a taco. It was a big line, so I went in because I'm impatient. And uh, I ordered, and I laid down the 20. I went and got my drink, and I came back. And the little guy behind the counter said, here's your order, sir, order number 449. Now, for all you third edition people, you get it, right? <laughs> because Don, early on, when I would call him and I would complain about whatever, he would say, have you read 449 today? 417 for you fourth edition people. He would say, have you read 449 today? And I'd say no, and he'd hang up. (laughs) So I'd have to go read that, then call him. And so on that day, he gave me that. I thought, how cute. Don's got spies everywhere. That's funny, you know. 
And I went home that night, and uh, at 4 in the morning, the hospital calls me and says, we found your daddy's unresponsive. You need to get here. You've got to pay attention here. You've got to pay attention here. See, when you're in the spiritual, we have entered the realm of the spirit. I never know where the message is going to come from. I don't want to talk any kind of voodoo, woo-woo stuff. I'm talking about God's messengers on this earth. And it could be from the, the newcomer in the room, or it could be a guy at the taco, something that slides a number to me that says, get into some acceptance. It's coming. And I went there that day, and they put, took my dad off life support, and I got to hold his hand as he went to the next room. And in that moment, it was the most spiritual thing that I've ever encountered. And I'm going to tell you something about that. I almost missed it. I almost missed all that. And I've had this kind of incredible life in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've had this life that's not because I've got to do things. It's because I have this incredible people in my life. I have you in my life today. But I don't want to stand up here and tell you that ever since I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous, it's all been rainbows and lollipops. I've had some problems here. I've had some real problems in AA. At nine years sober, I got, uh, well, Lori likes to say I got over sober in AA, you know. Uh, I like to say I just got godly, you know. <laughs> and I quit, I quit sharing my experience. I began to tell people what to do. And I got very didactic in my approach to Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you're in an AA meeting and you talked about the nightly inventory of being part of the 10th step, I would chase you out of the room and tell you you're killing people, right? I would just beat that book over your head. It's just, it, it wasn't attractive at all. And uh, Lori called me and said, I need to see you tonight at home. And she said, I don't know you. You're physically sober, but you're not spiritually sober. You're not emotionally sober, and you got to go. Now, at this time, I just got off a chair in our area conference, about 1,800 people. I just became the alternate area chair. Every once in a while, somebody might buy me an airplane ticket to go somewhere. I mean, I'm making a real name for myself in an anonymous program here, you know, <laughs> which ought to give you some clue of how sick I really was, right? And at nine years sober, I got kicked out of my house one more time. We talk about second surrenders in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I had a soul-crushing experience. I mean, I'm that guy that would talk about your group. I would talk about you, how you don't do it right. I'm a disunifier in AA in the name of that I'm really doing something good. And I was so sick, I didn't know how sick I was here. And I went and, uh, you know, I just got this second surrender, this soul-crushing second surrender. And I'm going to tell you, when I had that surrender in Alcoholics Anonymous, one more time, the curtains got pulled. And I began to see things from a different perspective. I began to have compassion for people. You know, I began to have this idea that, you know, I'm just one among many. Cindy and I were talking at night at dinner. I've had this awakening about three years, about three weeks ago, that I began to see my role in Alcoholics Anonymous with my hometown in a different perspective, that I'm moving to the back of the room. And I mean moving back to the back of the room, not because I'm some really, really old-timer, but I'm moving to the back of the room but just based on my experience. And the questions that get asked of me your day are different from the questions that used to be asked of me. They're serious questions. They're serious questions about the book, about the sobriety, about emotional sobriety. How can I expand my spiritual life? Those kind of things. And I feel myself moving to the back of the room, and once again, I feel this expansion of my spiritual life growing. And I don't mean that in any kind of egotistical way or anything. I just have an awareness. 
of my role in Alcoholics Anonymous is changing. And it's one that I relish. And it's one that I look at and view, and I can't wait to see what happens here. Because the excitement of Alcoholics Anonymous is that we never get to the spot, that it's always just the journey. And as long as I'm willing to be teachable, the journey always unfolds for me. There was a couple, and they had two little kids, and they wanted to go to Italy more than any. I mean, go to come to America. They lived in Italy, and they wanted to come to America. And they'd save their money for a year to come. And all they could afford was tickets down in the steerage, way down the bowels of the boat. And the day before they left, they went to the bodega across from the shipyards, and they got all this meat and cheese, and they bought it, and they took it on the boat, and they were down in the bowels and in their little cabin, and about three days, the kids are stir-crazy. Let us just go out in the hall and play. Well, they knew they couldn't leave the cabin, but they thought, we'll just let the kids run up down the hall and play. And so the kids got in the hall, run up and down playing. They lost track of time and kind of got distracted, and they couldn't hear the kids anymore. And they went outside, and they were gone. So they shut their door, and they panicked because they knew they couldn't leave their room. And about an hour later, there was a knock on the door, and they opened it, and the kids were there, and they had this boxes and boxes of food. There was roast beef and ham and all these desserts and vegetables. And they grabbed the kids and pulled them in and said, Where have you been? Where did you go? And they said, Mom, Dad, upstairs, up those steps, upstairs, there's a banquet. And at the banquet, there's all this food. And you can go there, and you can eat it all. It comes with the ticket. It comes with the ticket. And you can come to Alcoholics Anonymous, and you can sit on the back row. You can eat the crumbs of AA. You can come here by the river, dying of thirst. But Alcoholics Anonymous is a banquet. And I'm a selfish alcoholic. I want the whole damn enchilada, baby. You know, when you come here, all that Alcoholics Anonymous has to give us is available to us. And if you're new or you're nearly new or you've been here a while, hear this. There's more here. There's more here. And to tell you the best news of all, it comes with a ticket. Thanks for having me.